Well, good morning. A little housekeeping here. Good morning and welcome again to uh, Grace Bible Church, Gainesville. I pray that this day, this Lord's Day, finds you encouraged in the Lord. I hope that you recognize uh, the, enormous, the enormous privilege we have in serving our Lord by serving His church. As you know, the church has been maligned by evil men from the day of its birth. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter took his stand to defend the newborn church. Just listen to his words in Acts 2.15. He says, For these men are dr- not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Now, I want you to notice the words, as you suppose. The early disciples were no doubt being accused of drunkenness instead of having experienced the incredible filling of the Holy Spirit. And, but from that point forward, the church has been attacked by evil forces. I mean, that's clear. This reality, if we look at the pages of the New Testament, has played out over and over in the New Testament. And the church, our church even, continues to live this reality even to this day. Uh, it's true. This is true because uh, the church, or because Satan recognizes the power of the church, which is the body of Christ. In a re- recent article uh, by Abner Chow, he outlines four realities that make the church the most, the world's most glorious institution. First, he says that the church bears witness to Christ throughout the world. He writes, in all the globe. Christians are to describe and exclaim the glories of Christ. Because the church is a sample of the coming glory, the church must stop acting as if it's responsible for the renovation and redemption. Listen to carefully. Responsible for the renovation and redemption of culture when churches lose sight of their foundational purpose, their foundational purpose to bear witness to Christ, they start social movements and become distracted with the things of this earth. They forget that they are to witness Christ and be a sample of His coming kingdom, end quote. When we lose sight of our mandate to bear witness to Christ, we miss out on God's power and we become, get this, a shell of God's intent for us. Uh, Abner Chow also says that the second reality is that the church has the greatest authority in the world because it has the authority of Christ, again he states. But as the church faithfully exalts Christ and submits to His authority, we have an influence and power that is far beyond any other entity, including any corporation or political movement, end quote. Church, we need to recognize that even this small, seemingly insignificant gathering, this seemingly insignificant church has been given the very authority of Christ in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to make disciples of all the nations. The third reality, according to Chow, is that the church is a global or worldwide institution. He says, as impressive as multinational corporations are with money and influence spread across the globe, none of them are as extraordinary or as effective as the church. And this is true not only of the global church, but it is true, get this, of local congregations. That's what I was saying, that we are a manifestation of the global church here in a local place and in a, in a time in space. But he says this, as they, as the local churches support missions, they take part in this global institution 
And as they proclaim Christ, they announce the world's only hope. Guess what that is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And here's the amazing part for us. We get to be a part of this global church that is flung across the globe. We are connected to saints everywhere across this world, and get this, throughout the church age. And what's the one thing I love about this particular body of Christ? We live in a transient university town. Now, I don't like seeing people come and go, but we see saints come here from all corners of the globe, and we will see them go throughout the world from here. What an amazing opportunity that is. The last reality that Chow gives is that the church is the most noble institution. He writes, like the Apostle Paul, Christians today will be accused of insurrection and division simply for proclaiming the most noble, righteous, righteous and just message the world has ever known. But the church will continue to proclaim the truth because it is noble. And as a noble institution, it is willing to endure opposition, it is willing to endure, endure I'll add, persecution, for the sake of its integrity and for the good of others, even those who stand against it, end quote. Brethren, it is an honor to be a part of the body of Christ, but because we are part of something so incredible, something so incredible, we can expect then, though, we can expect to be, because of how incredible this is, and I think we miss the boat many times, we, we don't completely understand how incredible this is, that we're part of the body of Christ, but because of the incredible nature, the magnificent nature of uh, the body of Christ, we can expect to be attacked by the enemy. I believe that's the reason the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. I also believe this is the reason that he encouraged the church to put on the armor of God and to pray at all times in the Spirit. He knew... The apostle knew that we needed we need protection from the enemy. And we need to stand firm to resist the schemes of the devil. Today we're returning to our series we've entitled, or I've named, Preparing for Battle. I believe these truths that we find here in Ephesians chapter 6 are just as applicable today as they were the day that Paul wrote them. Maybe in some ways, because of the culture we live in, we don't fully understand how applicable these truths are. I believe that we will see the importance of prayer, the critical nature of prayer, and we'll become, and that we will become, above all, if we see this, if we understand it, we will become a praying church. But let me tell you something. Satan loves churches that don't pray. Satan loves churches that don't pray. In the words of Corey Tenboom, when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When the Christian stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. When he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. End quote. Let me pray and then we'll dive into our text this morning. Gracious Lord, I pray that we pray this morning that you would be with us. Pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to superintend this preaching of the Word. We know that Your Word will not return void. Father, we pray that it would do 
all that it's intended to do in the heart of the listener. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Paul writes, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, did you know that humans have been broadcasting radio waves into deep space for over a hundred years now? According to one scientist, this means that there is an ever-expanding circle of radio waves traveling through the great expanse of space. This circle, as you might imagine, is astronomically large, literally and currently spans over 200 light years. Now, how big is this compared to the size of the Milky Way galaxy in which we live? According to scientists, the Milky Way is estimated to be 100,000 to 200,000 light years in diameter. That makes our current reach about the size of a closet compared to a large American home. When you consider that Scientists have observed many other galaxies in the universe. Our reach is pretty pitiful indeed. On a somewhat related subject, according to an article written by Judith Gaines back in March of 2000, you could at that time send your prayers to God via a website. Newprayer.com says simply click on the pray, pray button and transmit your prayer to the only known location of God. The site claims it can send prayers via a radio transmitter to the God's last known location, the star cluster M13. According to the article, M13 is, to, is believed to be one of the oldest star clusters in the universe. A man named Crandall Stone of Cambridge, Massachusetts, an engineer and freelance consultant, set up the site after a winter's night of sipping brandy and philosophizing with friends in Vermont. During the evening, the conversation turned to Big Bang theories of creation. Someone suggested that if everything was in one place at the time of the explosion, God must have been there as well. It's the one place that we could be sure that He was. So we thought if we could find that location and had a radio transmitter, we could send a message to God. So after consulting with NASA scientists, the friends settled on M13 as the most likely location for God. They chipped in about $20,000 to build a radio transmitting, a wave transmitting website. When this article was written, newprayer.com had transmitted 50,000 or was transmitting 50,000 prayers a week from seekers around the globe. Unfortunately, for current seekers, the website has been shut down. Hopefully they realize that God cannot be put in a box or in a star cluster. More intelligent folks probably figured out that it takes your prayers about 25 years to get to God since that star cluster is 25 light years away. And that's about 50 years if God sends the answer back via radio. <laughs> or overnight if you use his FedEx. I don't 
know about you, but I find it fascinating that intelligent people could be so foolish and actually believe that we can communicate with God through radio waves. They won't trust the truth that God can hear our prayers at any place at any time, but they believe that we can send radio waves through space to communicate with Him. I'm also saddened that people try to put God in a box. David understood that you, couldn't, you can't limit God to just one place. In Psalm 139, 7, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I take the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. Now let's put those two thoughts together. The immensity of the universe and the presence of God. Just think how big this universe is. We really can't fathom it, right? We, we, if we think about it, we fully realize that we cannot fathom the size of the universe. Yet, according to David, there is no place in the heavens that we can go without God being there. Theologians call this God's omnipresence. And not only that, but God hears every prayer of His saints no matter where we are, no matter where we pray. David understood that truth as well. Just listen to Psalm 139, 2-5. He says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand, get this, my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know it all. So your prayers, God hears your prayers immediately. Even before you mouth them, He knows them already. It's a great comfort to the Christian to know that God hears prayer. And he answers them. Here's something even more profound. When we communicate with God through prayer, we are not merely communicating with some faraway deity who has no regard. As Christians, we have a personal relationship with Him through Christ. And according to Colossians 1, Christ is the creator of the universe. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Him all things are hold together. According to J.C. Ryle, he says, True Christianity is not merely the belief and study of certain theological propositions. So you can know that he's omnipresent, right? You can study that, and you can understand what that means. But he says this, it is to live in a daily personal communication with an actual person, Jesus, the Son of God, end quote. Let me put it this way. 
Again, we can know that God is everywhere all at once, but that does not matter unless we recognize that we have a personal relationship with Him and that we can communicate with Him on an ongoing basis. And according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, not only can we communicate with Him, but we need to communicate with Him. We need to live in the confidence as Christians, as believers, we need to live in the confidence that He hears us and that He answers our prayers. Now, we've been slowly, very slowly, that's a joke, very slowly working through this last part of the, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this section, which started in Ephesians 6.10, Paul encourages the saints at Ephesus to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. In verse 11, he tells them to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, to understand Paul's commands, we must recognize that the church has been, from its very beginning, the church at Ephesus has been under attack from demonic forces, and those attacks would continue into the future. And Paul recognized that they, the the church at Ephesus, needed to be strengthened for the battle ahead. So he tells them to put on the the full armor of God so that they they will continue to endure and flourish. And in 6.14, we saw this over the last several weeks, he began to explain the full armor of God. Now, last week, we started looking at verse 18, where he begins to focus specifically on prayer. And after encouraging the Ephesian saints to put on the full armor of God to stand firm, Paul further encourages the church at Ephesus to pray. And in doing so, he gives them seven indispensable characteristics of spirit-filled prayers of the believers first your prayers must be conscientious now we looked at this last week let's just run through that very quickly so look at verse 18 ephesians 6 18 where paul writes with all prayer and petition now i told you last week that i i believe the net bible gets this first phrase correct the net bible the net the new english translation says with every prayer and petition I think Paul is saying that we should, consider, should not consider any of our prayers as quote-unquote throwaway prayers. In other words, God hears all our prayers. He hears every prayer. Therefore, we mustn't, mustn't pray in a flippant or frivolous manner. God gives two, the best two examples of this in His Sermon on the Mount. Christ, Jesus Christ, that is, our, our Lord. In Matthew 6, 6, he says, he warns us not to pray externally focused prayers to be seen by men. And in Matthew 6, 7, this again in the Sermon on the Mount, he advises against praying repetitious prayers, which are nothing more than meaningless words. Now, we need then to recognize that every prayer of the saints is meaningful. And every godly prayer of the saint is then powerful. If you want to be effective in ministry, if you want to live a life that's effective to minister to those around you, you will be a praying saint. I'm just saying that when the tough gets going, the saints must get to praying. When When the going gets tough, that is, the saints must get to praying. I'll get it right in a minute. E.M. Bound states, four things that let us ever keep in mind as christians four things let us ever keep in mind god hears prayer god heeds prayer god answers prayer and god delivers by prayer end quote 
Now let's look at the second indispensable characteristic of prayer. Your prayers must be constant. Con your prayer must be constant. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Pray at all times. The witness of Scripture is clear regarding the consistency of our prayer lives. The, the Scripture calls for us to pray without ceasing. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.17. But I want to add a nuance to this injunction to pray. We need to constantly pray, and, our, and in, our prayers should, in our prayers should be an urgency. An urgency. Not only are we to be constantly praying, but we need to have an urgency about our prayer. Just think about it. We depend upon God for everything in life, truly everything. In Acts 17.25, Paul preached on Mars Hill in Athens, and he, in his sermon he told the people of Athens that God gives life, He gives breath, and everything to mankind. He tells them that He, that he made from one man every nation of mankind. And he tells them that, they, that God determined the times and the boundaries of their dwelling. And that ultimately in Him we live and move and have our being. Now, as believers, so Paul, Paul was preaching to unbelievers here. And he's telling them that all these truths about God and who we are in God. And, and so as believers, we need to fully recognize what God has done. And we need to know that God has clearly revealed Himself in every way. And we understand as believers that our physical needs are fully met by God, right? We understand these things. We come to understand that every good thing comes down from the Father above. And so, we are dependent upon Him. We are dependent upon Him. And we need, there needs to be an urgency about our prayers, understanding how dependent we are on Him. And even greater than that, as Christians, we come to comprehend the greatness of our salvation in Christ. Therefore, our communication with our Maker and our Redeemer should be constant, and it should be urgent. Just consider Jesus' story from Luke 11.5. And He said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. But from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now listen to our Lord's words in Luke eleven nine. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks and finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Opened. Now, let me give you a stunning, a stunning truth about prayer. God answers those who pray continually and with a sense of urgency that is driven by our need for Him. Some folks understand. Some folks wonder why he doesn't seem to answer their prayers. Could it be that their answers are in direct proportion to the amount they pray? That they don't pray enough. He wants us. He wants us to be in constant communication with him. I'm not advocating empty prayers. I'm advocating constant, urgent 
and dependent prayer. This is the type of prayer that God profoundly answers. Profoundly answers. Let's review the third indispensable characteristic of prayer. Your prayers must be controlled by the Spirit. Look back at your text in verse 18. He says, pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, last week I told you the best way to explain praying in the Spirit is to look at its opposite, praying in in the flesh, which means praying in a way that is dependent not on the Spirit, but on human effort. I believe that this is the reason why many depend upon repetitious prayers. Uh, and, and other folks, it's the reason why other folks pray only to be seen. These fleshly prayers are not, are not, let me underline not, are not pleasing to God. Prayers in the Spirit then are first and foremost dependent upon the Spirit of God. Those who pray in the Spirit recognize the Spirit's presence as they're praying. And that, that recognition is like, uh, one commentator said, like a skateboard. You're going down the gentle slope. It's just guiding you along. Now, I don't... Now, let me just say this. I don't think there has to be some spectacular outworking of the Spirit for us to pray in the Spirit. Actually, I'm more suspect about people who claim those types of experiences. Many times, these supposed manifestations of the Spirit are nothing more than the manifestations of the flesh clothed by the supposed Spirit. You see, they're no more than men wanting attention. But I would submit to you that that true praying in the Spirit is marked by humility and comes from a heart of a saint who understands their true dependence upon God for everything. Remember what we just said, right? I'm reminded of one of the greatest, greatest spiritual encounters ever experienced by any man. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes being caught up in heaven. And, and describing his experience, Paul wouldn't even speak in the, in the first person. He, he described this incredible spiritual encounter in the third person. And God even sent him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from exalting himself. Here's what I'll tell you. Here's what I'll tell you. Praying in the Spirit, or prayers in the Spirit, are prayers of humble dependence upon and submission to the Father. They are not flamboyant. They are not empty. They are not prideful. But they are humble. And they are full of dependence, as I've said several times. And they are heartfelt. Now let's look at the fourth indispensable characteristic of prayer. Your prayers must be cognizant. Your prayers must be cognizant. Look back at your text in verse 18, Ephesians 6, 18. Paul writes in, with this in view, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Again, I think the, the New English translation translates this section well. It says, and to this end, be, on alert, be alert. To this end, be alert. I really like how the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. It says, he says, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert in this. Now, I give you these, these different translations to help you understand Paul's point. In the first part of the verse that we've looked at, Paul is saying in general, your prayers should be 
conscientious with an understanding that all your prayers matter to God. It should be constant with the recognition of the urgency of prayer, and it should be controlled, guided, and carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, he says, with that in view, with these things in view, or to this end, in other words, he wants the saints to apply these truths in a very specific way. He wants us to pray conscientiously and constantly in the Spirit for the saints. And in doing so, we must be alert. We must be alert. Cognizant of the dangers facing or aware, is another way to put it, of the dangers facing the children of God. Literally, he says, to this end, being alert. The word translated being alert is, is a, denotes an ongoing and active state of being watchful for peril or danger. Beloved, Paul is calling for the church to be cognizant or understanding of the threats facing all the saints. In the context of Ephesians 6.18, he's referencing the threat of danger from, satanic, from the satanic or demonic realm. You see, we need to be keenly aware. We need to be keenly aware of and alert to the schemes of the devil. Not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the saints. We need to be willing to watch. We need to be alert, understanding how he works. When we truly recognize and understand the dangers that are lurking, our prayers then will be urgent and dependent, right? Right? They'll be urgent and dependent upon the Spirit. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to His disciples in Matthew, Matthew 26, 41. This is prior to going to the cross. He says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, uh, dependent prayers recognize the weakness of the flesh and we depend upon God because we know that He's the one who gives us the protection that we need. As I said, He spoke these words it was as He was facing the certainty of the cross and He knew, He, he knew, He understood that His disciples would face great temptation to turn from Him. We, we spoke about Simon Peter earlier at the men's group he un Jesus understood the, the spiritual nature of the battle. Simon Peter didn't recognize the, the danger that he was facing. And in Luke twenty two thirty one, Jesus rebuked him with these incredibly shocking words. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded the permission to sift you like wheat. This was in response to him, them arguing about who's the greatest. He's saying, look. You don't understand. You don't understand what you're facing. This statement should remind you of Satan's request regarding Job. Remember, remember those? We talked about them early in this, in this series. Jesus' next words to, to Peter offer warning and hope. <laughs> this is our Lord talking. We need to be pray, pray, a praying people. But he modeled this. He says, but I have prayed for you. How much more so? We're talking about the sovereign king of heaven who's praying for Peter. How much more so should we be praying? But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, in other words, he's saying Satan will come after you, but Peter, your faith will not fail, and you will be used in the future. See the model of intercessory prayer here. We, we need to be then aware or cognizant of the dangers. We must then be watchmen. We must pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, you know, all the division that happens in church, if we, if we truly do this, what happens to the divisions? They go away, right? They, they, they begin to, we begin to come together. You, you need to pray for your brothers and sisters. You need to pray for their faith. We need to pray for their protection. We need to be praying for their usefulness. And we need to be praying for their perseverance. Satan does not want us to pray in this way. He wants us to be blind to the dangers. He wants us to be living in a state of unalertness. I'm reminded of the words of John Newton. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. As Christians, we must recognize the dangers, the toils and snares that Satan gladly lays for God's people. We must be cognizant that he wants nothing more than for us as God's people to fail. And it is in that understanding we must continue to be dependent in prayer. Let me give you the fifth indispensable characteristic of prayer. Your prayers must be continuing, continuing. With all, look at your verse 618. He says, with all perseverance and petition. In a sense, we've already looked at this. Your prayers must be constant, and that sounds very similar, right? But there is a slight nuance here that I, I think we need to understand. This has the idea of continuing to pray even when we are opposed by the world and by the enemy. This word translated perseverance means to undertake something with a firm persistence regardless of the circumstance. You see, see our prayers, even when, when Satan comes against us, when the demonic realm comes against us, we need to not only be praying, but we need to continue to pray. Earlier I was saying when the going gets tough, the saints must get to praying. Let me add this to the saying, when the going gets tough, the saints must keep on praying. Now, we need to look briefly at the word petition. It's the second time this word has shown up in the verse. This word means to make an urgent request to meet a need. The idea of the word fits clearly within the context of this verse. When we recognize the dangers from the enemy, we, when we encounter the temptations of the flesh, when we are exposed to the fiery arrows of the enemy, we need to make our urgent requests made known to God. It's not that He doesn't already know what we need. He does, but He wants us again to be dependent upon Him. He wants us to urgently appeal to Him. Again, I'm reminded to, of Matthew 26, 41. Remember, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. We need to be continually praying. I think the word, the emphasis in that verse is on keep. Keep watching. Keep praying. You've heard it said that there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Well, as Christians, we have to recognize that we are in a constant foxhole. 
We are in constant, a constant state of battle, a state of war. Yeah, there's no physical bullets flying. There are no bombs exploding around us. But uh, there are those dangers from spies lurking. But the, the dangers we have to recognize are much greater than that. We have an enemy that won't rest from prowling around on this earth and looking for someone to devour. And he's looking for you. He's looking for you. Don't forget that. And don't forget that that's what he's doing to each person, and we need to be praying for them. When we don't see them come around, we need to be praying for them. We need to be thinking of them, because they are in danger. (coughs) When we recognize this and recognize that we are helpless to protect ourselves, then we will urgently and continually seek him in prayer. Let's look at the sixth indispensable characteristic of prayer. Your prayers must be comprehensive. Comprehensive. Look back at verse 18. He says, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, first, I think we need to see this in a general sense that we should be praying for all the saints. We should be praying for the church of God. In other words, we need to be praying for the body of Christ, whether it's this local manifestation or whether it's you know churches that we know or ultimately, ultimately the church. The true church, the, the, the church, the universal church. You know, we can use Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to frame our prayers. We should be praying for our mission to go and make disciples of, of all the nations. We should be praying for our work in teaching the disciples all that Christ has commanded us. We should be praying for our obedience, our, that means the church, our obedience to His commandments as the body of Christ. We should be praying for our understanding that He is truly with us until the end of the age. Those are all found in Matthew 19, or 28, 19-20. We can also look at Ephesians 4 in our prayers for the body of Christ. We should be praying for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ, for the increase of unity within the body of Christ, that we would no longer be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, that we would speak the truth in love, that we would grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, and that we would function as a healthy body. We need to be praying these things. Not only should we be praying for the body of Christ as a whole, we need to be praying for individual saints. Now, that's the hard work of prayer. For us to be able to pray for individual saints, we need to know them. We need to know them in an intimate way so that, they, so that we can understand what is going on with them. This takes effort. Effort. It takes time and work to build relationships. But the truth is that we are to intimately know one another. Now, I believe this is where the one and other statements of the Bible are critical. Let me just give you a few. Let me just give you a few. And I I think if we do these things, I think that a prayer for one another will just come naturally. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 13.8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Romans 14.19, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Galatians 5.13. By the way, I'm just giving a few. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Ephesians 4.25, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth each of you with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now here's an interesting one. On several occasions, Paul tells the saints to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now I'm not telling you to go out and kissing the saints. We might get in trouble. But I do take that to mean that we are to receive one another warmly. We are to receive one another warmly. Now, again, if we follow these commands, these one another commands, we will truly love one another and we will build intimacy with one another and this intimacy will lead us then to pray for one another. I firmly believe that. You see, we'll know the specific challenges faced by our Christian brothers and sisters. Now, on a practical note, on a very practical note, I would encourage you to join a care group so that you will be intimately known and you will intimately know others so that you can pray for them. I suggest that you pray in these groups and pray outside of these groups. Not only pray inside the group as you meet, but take the opportunity to pray for others in your group as you grow to understand who they are. As this church grows, we have to be understanding It'll be difficult to keep up with every potential relationship, but you can be at an intimate level with a few of your folks from your care group, and you can pray for them. Also, take advantage of the prayer band. We have this band app, and you can see prayer requests on that band app. Take advantage of that. Put prayer requests out there so we can know, and, and read them, and pray for them. Take advantage of the monthly prayer meeting as well. We meet every month. We meet and after church and we pray for specific requests. We pray for this church. We pray for you. Some of you have been prayed for even though you haven't come. These avenues will help you know what's happening in the lives of each believer. Whatever you do, you need to be praying for one another. We have an enemy and he's actively deceiving the brethren. Therefore, we need to pray urgently for one another. Now, As we turn the corner toward the Lord's table, I want to begin to focus your mind on the cross. We should recognize that one of Satan's attacks is on the effectiveness of, uh, another word would be efficacy, of of Christ's sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. With that statement, that simple statement, Paul states the problem. See, the world says that God coming into this world as a baby in the manger is foolishness. The world says that the Bible's claim that Jesus lived out the perfections of God in human flesh is foolishness. But let's be crystal clear. Let's be crystal clear. If those things were true, and I believe they are, but if they, if they are true, why would he ever go on to die on a blood-soaked cross? Just think about this. A man like that, one who came like Christ came, you know, in Greek, Greek mythology, he'd be a conquering hero. 
You'd be a conquering hero, not a crucified Savior. You see, that's pure foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 19-25, Paul writes, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolishness, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But here's the point. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block. And to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here's the point where Satan twists the truth of the cross. He twists the truth of salvation. He whispers into the ear of the Christian and says, the cross can't be enough. You can't trust Him to save you by grace through faith. You see, some of us think that we're, we can never be good enough for Christ. For God, that is. Others will trust in their own works instead of trusting in the work of Christ. But both are the same error, are they not? The same error in different clothes. It's a failure to trust the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, that is the truth of the gospel. The holy God became perfect man. He walked in the perfections of God. He went to the cross according to the predetermined plan of God. Peter proclaimed in Acts 2.23, This man, this Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. But he didn't remain in the grave. He didn't remain in the grave. Just listen to Peter's words. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we all are witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So here's the simplicity of, all, of it all. This is the simplicity of the gospel. You were only asked to believe to believe these truths. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him and knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is simple truth. He lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect life. He went to the, to the cross where He took upon Himself our sin on our behalf. 
But here's the amazing thing. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. For those who haven't trusted in Christ, He bids you to believe. You see, that, that message of the cross may sound like foolishness to you. Crucified Savior. Crucified Savior. All I have to do is believe. Believe in what He's accomplished on our behalf. That may sound like foolishness to you. But according to Paul, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God unto the salvation of your soul. For those who have trusted in Christ, I want you to persevere in prayer. Pray for the saints that we wouldn't fall for Satan's lies. See, he doesn't want us to believe that message. He wants us to think that that message is foolishness. He wants us to try to do everything else in the world to, to renovate the world. But here's the truth. The only thing we have to offer the world is the name of Christ. As we pray to close out this sermon, I want us to take a few moments to meditate on the truth of what Christ has accomplished for us. So I'm going to pray to close out the sermon and then we're going to enter in a time of, of communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for the truths of this passage in Ephesians 6.18. Lord, our enemy would want nothing more than for us to twist the message, than for us to preach a gospel of human effort, than for us to preach a, a social gospel. But we preach Christ crucified. We know it'll be a stumbling block and foolishness, foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others, but Lord, may we continue to do so. And as we enter this time of observing the Lord's table, and may we meditate on the truths of what you have accomplished. In Christ's name, amen. Out the elements, and as they do, uh, I just want to remind you that communion is for believers in the Lord Jesus. If you have believed upon Him, if you've trusted in Him for your salvation, you believe that you have been saved by grace through faith alone, we welcome you to partake together. And we ask that you take this seriously. It's a serious time of reflection. Uh, we ask that you reflect upon your relationship with Christ and where you stand. Just take the time to confess sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If you have children, we just ask that you 